Welcome to Oberter Dicta, Bloomsbury Professional Ireland's podcast where we speak on legal and tax topics. Today we are joined by Dennis Kelleher, author of Privacy and Data Protection Law in Ireland and co-author of EU Data Protection Law, to name but a few of his titles. Dennis is Head of Privacy at LinkedIn and specialises in data protection and privacy law. We sat down with Dennis to record a two-part episode. In this first episode, we speak about the recent developments in the law. The second part, which will follow in the coming weeks, features a discussion with Dennis about his career and his work as in-house counsel in the tech sector. But for this episode, we're going to dive straight into the questions of legal developments. Dennis, you're really welcome to the podcast. We're delighted to have you come on to talk about the world of data protection. To start, could we talk a little bit about GDPR, which applied back in May 2018, and what changes you've seen since? I think the big change that we're seeing is is the maturity, as I was talking about earlier, the maturity, the maturing that we're seeing within the sector as people develop a better understanding of the law, as we see uh, more decisions coming out from the Data Protection Commission, as we see more action at the European Data Protection Board. We're also seeing cases move through the European Court of Justice. And then we also have these sorts of very significant changes in the law at a European level. And these proposals, these very significant proposals to change the law at a European level, that's going to significantly change the um, the environment going forward. So I think it's um, there is a huge amount of change in this, this area at the present time. I mean, probably the most um, dramatic change that we've seen in recent in since the GDPR came into effect is, of course, the Schrems 2 case, the updates to the standard contractual clauses, the ongoing negotiations between the European Union and the USA. And you then have, um, so, for example, a very interesting development is the uh, DPC announcing that the Data Protection Commission announcing they're investigating transfers from the European Union from Ireland to other countries, not just the USA. I think that's going to be a very, very interesting um, development. We're seeing a huge amount of change. And one of the things, obviously, one of the most sort of topical issues that we're seeing at the present time is Grand Duar case, which is coming up before the European Court of Justice. I think that's a really real potential to impact on the law in Ireland. Um, as you know, it's a very long-running case about the ability of the state to rely upon um, telecommunications data. You know, phone location data arise from the Grand Wire case. So that's sort of one of the, the big cases that we're seeing coming up. But I think overall, I think it's more what the, the real underlying change, if you sort of step back from this, is over the last five to six years, data protection has moved from being very much a niche and almost quite obscure area. It was a very obscure area. I mean, until the application of GDPR, it wasn't so much a niche as it was just basically obscure. Whereas now we've moved to an area where it really is um, much more central. You know, where every sort of significant government department, every commercial entity really runs on personal data to a huge extent. So there are a very limited number of companies that don't really process personal data, but there's very few and far between. Basically, all um, the processing of personal data is now integral to private and the public sectors. So we're seeing more and more of that being seen, that being used as a fundamental, as a fundamental issue. It's seen as being a key issue across different businesses. So I suppose I think it's the... Data protection, as I said, has been very much a fringe sort of pursuit. 
to being something that's seen as being very, very central to business. That is probably the biggest change, is just the importance that people attach to um, data protection, which they didn't attach before. So there are various appeals against um, decisions of the DPC. They're now before the Irish and the European courts. Uh, we're seeing a huge number of appeals coming through from the European Union, from other countries within the European Union. And they, you know, they will significantly impact upon the sort of the broader environment in the coming years. You mentioned the Graham Dwyer case. I just wondered, maybe you could give us your take on that. It's going to be, it's going to be very interesting to see. I think a lot of people assume the, the, um, you know, that the Graham Dwyer case, that there is a couple of issues that are very interesting there. One is can the, um, to what extent can the state gather personal data relating to particularly this metadata around phone location and all the rest? And there is one issue there. There's also then, so, I mean, that's, that's going to be one issue that's going to be looked at in, by the European Court of Justice is the legality of the processing of that personal data. The other thing which is almost equally interesting is what what happens in a situation like Graham Dewire, where effectively, the, where the, um, I mean, the argument, as I understand it, being made by the state, is at the time that that data wasn't ga- was gathered, it wasn't necessarily illegal. So it's those sorts of two things of, you know, is it legal to process this evidence, this data for the purpose of evidence, number one? And number two, then, should that evidence be, be admissible in court? particularly if the law has changed since the other evidence was actually gathered. And, you know, does do court decisions like that, do they necessarily have retrospective effects? So I think that's going to be a very interesting thing. They're both going to be very interesting points to see how, how, they, are, how they are worked through and how the system approaches them. The ongoing conversation, for want of a better word, between the various departments of justice around Europe and the European Court of Justice itself and the EU Commission about how we process, how personal data is processed by telecommunications companies, to what extent can you gather that telecommunications information, and to one, what extent can it be processed by the police. It's, very, it's been very interesting to see that work through the systems, through the various um, court cases, the various challenges that have been brought it's an ongoing debate, I suppose, would be the, the best way to put it, between these different viewpoints of what are your expectations of privacy on a communication system and to what extent can the state use this data to um, investigate you. If you ever see any document, uh, sort of an actual documentary, as opposed to the sort of... Um, it's quite striking if you like watching police procedurals where your fictional Inspector Morse investigating a crime. Typically, Inspector Morse, this typical of all police procedurals, will involve a, you know, some like Inspector Morse sitting at home, drinking a glass of whiskey, listening to music, listening to opera, and coming to the realisation that the butler did it or whatever it is. It's a typical Agatha Christie sort of approach to criminal investigation. If you actually see how a crime is actually investigated in the modern world, a huge amount of it is data gathering. So if there is a murder, the immediate response of the investigators, a murder or a serious crime, will be to do a number of things. One will be to gather as much electronic information as they can. The other one will be to gather all the CCTV footage that they can and to um, gather up all of that, to process it, and to sort of identify individuals maybe in the location 
of the, the scene of the crime and to follow up on that. But I mean, for the first sort of 18 to 36 hours after a major crime, a huge part of the work from what I have seen of the work of the police forces is down to basically data gathering, data analysis. It bears no resemblance whatsoever to how criminal investigations are actually depicted to the popular mind. You know, the a huge number of break- breakthroughs come through f- things like taxing in with CCTV cameras, which obviously raise issues about the level of notice that people get about those CCTV cameras externally. But yeah, just things about camera footage from shops, camera footage from taxis. A huge amount of this information is gathered and processed and used to investigate crimes. And obviously the question then is, you know, what are people's expectations of privacy in that space? And I suppose that's what's coming up really in the um, in the Graham Dewar case. Once more is what are your expectations of privacy in an area where we are subject to so much monitoring? Purely as a matter of back in the 1970s, or 1981, I think was the year, there were 198 serial killers active in the USA. Guess that, we, either of you care, care to guess how many serial killers were active in the USA in 2019? I couldn't guess. Two. <laughs> oh, okay. That's basically serial killing. Um, so serial, if you ever see a film about a serial killing, I mean, what basically happened with serial killing was that there was this gap where basically journalists got better at sort of gathering data about crimes than the police. So in the States, they were able to sort of say, well, look, these, you know, that this huge publicity attached to people like Jack the Ripper in, the, in Yorkshire and the UK and other people in the States. But at this stage, in terms of, of being a serial killer, a serial killer, the definition of serial killer is somebody who kills two or more people. Basically impossible in America now to kill two more than two people. Once you kill two people at that stage, they will almost certainly catch you. As I said, there was only t- in 2019, there were only two serial killers identified as being active in the USA because they've got so good at processing the data, gathering information about individuals. Mm. You might get away with it once. You perhaps might get away with it twice, but it's almost impossible to get away with that sort of activity three times. That they will. Ca- Obviously, there are exceptions to this. So you do these things such as, you know, where you see things like gangland killings, which are much more organized. But even they, they, those are, you know, the, the individuals who commit those murders are, are varied. It isn't the same person doing it all the time. But it is a strange, it's, if you were to say, what is one of the big changes is that it's very, very difficult, for example, to com- commit crimes like that. The question is then, if you're subject to that level of monitoring, it's what are the consequences for society as a whole? Um, because we're all now subject to an extraordinarily intrusive level of monitoring. You know, we all carry mobile phones, which have cameras on them. So, I mean, it's, you know, your expectations of privacy now are fundamentally different to the expectation of privacy you would have had, say, 10 years ago or 20 years ago. You know, the idea that we would voluntarily carry a tracking device that would identify our location down to a few feet, that we would all carry a recording device and that we would all carry a camera is something that would have been beyond most science fiction 20 years ago. But everyone does that now. And it's not just people have carrying one such device. I mean, I have two mobile phones. The, the I mean, world is, is changing somewhat. Dennis, could I ask you quickly, though, um, say, for example, if the EU decides that 
it's retrospective in relation to that data in relation to Graham Dwyer, which I think it seems to be indicative that this decision may happen like that. What would your views be on that? It'd be very interesting to see what the uh, will they, first of all, whether a European Court of Justice hold that way, hold that. So one of the interesting pieces of research that I did when I was in the state was working in Brussels was, yes, there is, it is correct to say that the European Court of Justice follows the uh, opinion of the Advocate General in about two-thirds of cases. That is true. The question needs to step back, though, and say, why is that? And one of the reasons why the European Court of Justice follows the Advocate General's opinion two-thirds of the time is that a lot, say, in a large number of cases, the answer to the question will be self-evident. So it isn't that there is no deviation between the Advocate General and the Court of Justice. It isn't that the Court of Justice generally follows the opinion of the Advocate General. I think it's more correct to say, in a significant number of cases, the answer to the question that's been asked the court will be relatively straightforward. And that is why you see the court following the Advocate General in a majority of cases. I don't think Graham Dewar is one of those cases where the answer is necessarily self-evident. So I do think it's going to be very interesting to see what the Court of Justice does. And will the Court of Justice decide, they may well decide that the gathering of information was, that the gathering of this data may have been in breach of the European expectation of privacy. But will they then require um, you know, to what extent will they issue instructions to be to the domestic court? Or will they say to the domestic court, it's a matter for you to decide, you know, what is the validity of this in a retrospective situation? I think you're you're correct. I think the majority, the, the, there is an expectation that the Court of Justice will follow the opinion of the Advocate General. But I think you need to be careful about those expectations. We don't actually know what they're going to say. And the Court of Justice you know, on questions like this, I would not be surprised to see the Court of Justice pushing it back onto the court, the National Court, saying it's for the National Court to decide this issue. One of the back, I mean, in the background, what's really going on here is an ongoing discussion between member states and the European Union and the institutions, you know, member state governments and member state in, and the institutions of, of the European Union, including the Court of Justice. They're basically having a sort of lengthy discussion about what is the role of the European Union, what powers does it have in relation to the criminal justice area. And I think you have to see, I mean, I think you have to see it in that broader context of how much of a role does the European Court of Justice want to play? To what extent does it want to defer to the member states? We are certainly seeing, for example, the uh, French Court de Cassian pushing back. We've seen the Karlsruhe Court pushing back, I think, again, and we see then the Polish courts pushing back. So there is, there's a tendency in the privacy sphere, I suppose, to focus in on our own specific issues. The issue about what's Graham Dewar going to decide, how is that going to affect privacy law and the processing personal data, you know, this sort of metadata, mobile phone data. But there's also important to step back and say, well, there's the bigger issue here, is what is the relationship between the European Court of Justice and the national courts and what is the relationship between the European system of laws, the European treaty-based system of laws, and national laws? So I think it's, I don't want to say that people, the, the expectation of privacy, but that's actually a really, really, really important point. 
and is is something that's got has implications far beyond the area of, mm. of you know what is the role you know what is should the relationship between member states and the European Union be because as you know I mean following Brexit and following the sort of situation in Poland and Hungary you know that that is an issue that's still that's very much up for political discussion and I think again that is going to be sort of stepping back again from the privacy sphere that's going to be probably the most one of the most interesting issues that we're going to see discussed over the next sort of decade in terms of the relationship between European institutions and national institutions and what should the powers of the member states be what should their role be I think it's going to be an absolutely fascinating one. Could I just ask you, would you have any quick tips for practitioners in small firms or large firms trying to comply with GDPR, files around the office? Um, and, you know, they're so busy bringing in fee income and, and attending to their clients. Would you have any quick tips for, for those? I think in terms of managing the issues, I mean, it depends what is the nature of the issue that you're you're dealing with. One thing that I've always very clearly understood from compliance in this space is that the DPC can be very forgiving of firms, of individuals who try to do the right thing. So if you're getting things like data access requests, and sometimes, you know, you know what I mean, they may raise difficult issues for you. But I think if you make your best efforts to sort of respond to those, I think the the Data Protection Commission will always recognise that you're trying to do the right thing here. And they they will tend to be supportive of you. They will sort of... um, you know, they, they recognize that you're trying to do the right thing. So I think the certainly in terms of legal practitioners who are dealing with directly with data subjects who may be, if they're operating on the side of the data subject or if they're operating on the side of the controller, I think certainly from the perspective of the, my experience working with the DPC is always to sort of try to do the best you can to sort of address the issues that are raised by the, the data subject. That, I mean, you're, what you want to signal to the Data Protection Commission in terms of managing those sorts of issues is that yes you understand your legal obligations one and two that you are going to make your best efforts to resolve that so i mean i mean in terms once you can signal that to the data protection commission and once you can signal that to the data subject a lot of these issues can get resolved i think a, a lot for a lot of data subjects they just simply want to know that their rights have been respected and that they are being heard, that you're not ignoring their, their issues. Data subjects get understandably annoyed and upset if they are making access requests that they're not being responded to, or if they're, uh, you know, if they're raising queries about the process of their personal data, they're looking for data to be, you know, deleted or whatever, and they're not getting coherent answers. So that then creates a level of frustration for the face frustration of the data subject. If they, if the data subject then complains to the DPC. And the DPC sees this correspondence where he may be, where they say, well, look, this data controller just isn't engaging with this data subject. That will level cause a, um, you know, that, that, that will cause the DPC then to become frustrated with you because they'll say, well, look, you know what I mean? The guy is, uh, this person, this man, this woman is asking a question um, that they're entitled to an answer to. They're asking to see their personal data. So you should really provide that to them. So I think it is that element of um, being conscious of your duty if you're acting for a data control of your duty to contro- cooperate with the DPC and your duty to facilitate data subjects. It can be, I mean, it can involve, I understand that people have a lot of work on. It can be very frustrating. But I mean, people have rights under the GDPR. They are entitled to their, to their you know, to access their personal information. They are entitled to have their data deleted in certain circumstances. 
it's not necessary or helpful for you to get involved in a discussion with either the Data Protection Commission or the subject about sort of the merit in those rights, the reality is the subject has those rights. And the simplest way usually to, to work through that is simply to um, recognize that they have their rights and to facilitate the data subject in the application of their rights. And if it then becomes an issue that's sort of escalated to the Data Protection Commission, if you can produce the correspondence that says, look, we have made best efforts, we have really um, tried to assist this data subject and to facilitate them and recognize their rights, that usually goes a long way in sort of resolving issues then for the Data Protection Commission. What you don't want to be is in the situation where people have been writing to you and you simply haven't responded. I've responded in a perfunctory way where you've said, no, we're not going, you know, that you haven't, you're unable to demonstrate that you've tried to engage with somebody and understand with what their issues may be. Thanks so much for that, Dennis. That was really, really helpful. And now we're moving to our, our lighthearted quickfire round. So brace yourself. The first question is, uh, can you just tell us what your favourite book is? I have a lot of them. I read quite a bit. Off the top of my head, I'm reading a book at the moment called The Sleepwalkers. I can't remember. It's, named by, it's written by name. It's about the sort of lead up to um, World War One. So I mean, that's the book I'm reading at the moment. The reason I find that interesting is the extent to which people in Europe were completely naive and completely deni- complete denial about what actually a world war would look like. And I think there's some very interesting parallels to our own situation with things like climate change, where people are in complete denial about what that means for us and for our society. And notwithstanding the fact that people have, you know, people have access to the, the science, we can see the climate changing around us, people are still in complete denial as to what this, how our world is going to change in the next 10, 20 years. So as a child, I grew up in England as a child, and there was certainly this naive view about the First World War was of all terrible mistake, and the people didn't understand what sort of modern weaponry would do to people's bodies, you know, if they had a first, when the First World War broke out. But yeah, I mean, it was well known. I mean, it was, people were very well aware what sort of, you know, machine guns had been used for like, in the American Civil War, which was 40 years previously, they'd been using them for years in Africa on the populations there. It was quite extraordinary how people just didn't apply that knowledge to their own situation. And they assumed that sort of the First World War would be like this mad- medieval fantasy. So it is, um, so at the moment, yeah, that's the book I'm reading at the moment. But yeah, I do, I do have quite a number of favourite books. Oh, that sounds like an excellent recommendation. Um, and so my next question is, uh, where would you like to go on a holiday to? And I think we can put this in a, in a COVID-free world, let's say. <laughs> Anywhere, I would say, at this stage. I mean, um, we were debating going, my family were debating going away at Christmas. My daughter said that we shouldn't go because she didn't actually think there was any reality to us making plans. She didn't want to be disappointed. And I think she was... Been, um, she's been proven right at this stage because I don't think anyone's, I think it's, um, I wouldn't be betting on getting away at Christmas at this stage. So yeah, I mean, frankly, anywhere. I mean, at this stage, like a lot of people, I'm contemplating planning my holidays for next summer and you're just going, I don't know, is there any point? But yeah, in terms of somewhere I'd like to go, I would love to go to Japan or somewhere like that, but I'm not sure I'd be up for all that long haul. Yeah. Well, if you're if you're so keen to get away, you won't mind my next question, which is your must have three items if you were to go to a desert island. It sounds like you might be happy enough to go to the desert island. Yeah, I'm not sure what desert island. I mean, yeah, uh, it depends on the desert island. Is it basic um, survival sort of equipment or what? But yeah, I mean, probably books, 
I don't know, ideally, I mean, um, scuba diving gear might be nice. I don't actually dive, but it's something to try out. Things to keep you occupied, I suppose, something like a sailing boat to sail around, something like that. A rowing boat to row around the place. Just, <laughs> I, I always find that desert island question kind of um, interesting in terms of, um, um, you know, are you actually talking about something that would help you survive in a desert island, just something to keep you occupied for whatever? I would imagine at this stage for a lot of piece, people, it would be something like Netflix box sets and stuff like that. I would frankly hate that. I would, yeah, I would really, I would love to go to a desert island simply to get away from that. I think to get away from electronic devices. So if you were to say, what would I like to bring to a desert island? It's not really about what I would like to bring. It's like what I would not like to bring. What I would really like to bring would be just no electronic devices and just to get away from that mad, vast clutter of electronic information that we're now all sort of swimming in. Yeah, I can totally see that, given given what we've been talking about. And then I, my next question is, uh, your favourite music artist? God, I'll age myself by saying probably the Smiths or something like that. They were often miserable, though. I'm fairly eclectic in my views, music views. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Just to be honest, um, if my daughter or whatever is listening, to, you know, sort of you pick up songs, you sort of start humming, and you don't realise it's because one of your kids is playing something, you sort of start listening to it. I've never really been somebody hugely addicted to um, specific to who would have a favourite artist. It's probably not somebody, um, whatever pops into my Spotify playlist. Yeah, I mean, again, I mean, I'm well aware that there's an algorithm in the background that's recommending <laughs> to me on the basis of, yeah, so whatever whatever song Spotify thinks that I should listen to next, I suspect, uh, which is not a good place to be. Yeah, there's the, there's the tech world breaching in again. Actually, probably the best, the most listenable music, I suppose, I've listened to my whole life is probably Abba, which is embarrassing, but yeah. Oh, I think they're having, they're having a comeback at the moment, isn't it? It feels like Abba Central these days. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what I found was that if you ever, apparently somebody said, and this is something that works, if you ever get a really annoying song stuck in your head, the best way to cure it is to start humming an Abba song because they basically kill it. <laughs> <laughs> basically, you know, you get one of these sort of earworms where it's just some really annoying song you can't get rid of. Just start humming something like Dancing Queen and apparently it goes away. It's a cure-all. Yeah. Um, and so uh, my next question is, how do you wind down? Um, I live in, I mean, I go for a walk, basically, is probably the best way to say it. Um, so I'm lucky I live in Dunleary where we have the piers. So I sort of go for a walk out the piers. And that's probably, the yeah, honestly, the way I wind down in the evening is just to bring the dog for a walk out one of the piers, you know, along by the sea. I find it very, you know, I find it very relaxing. The sea is always different. So you just get out, sort of clears my head. So, yeah, so I would go for a walk sort of every evening, yeah. Sounds wonderful. And then finally, how do you drink your tea, ranging from not at all to milky to black? I'm a coffee man. I have to admit I drink my coffee early in the morning. I do limit my coffee consumption. I try to stop drinking coffee quite early in the morning because I'm quite sensitive to caffeine. Do I drink? Uh, Yes, I do drink. I will drink tea on occasion. The truth is, I'll drink tea if I can't get if I can't get a decent cup of coffee. I'm not a big tea drinker. I do sometimes. I have sort of experimented with herbal teas, but no, I really haven't gone there for a glass of water. How do you drink your coffee? I drink my coffee with milk. So yeah, I, I drink a milky coffee. I don't drink it with sugar, but I'm very much a sort of um, latte man. 
Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been really wonderful speaking with you. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you, Dennis. It's been totally insightful and we really appreciate your time today. That's it for another episode of Obiter Dicta. We want to thank Dennis Kelleher for joining us on this insightful podcast and we look forward to bringing you another episode very soon.